Last week, we went through the genealogy of Jesus, your, you know, your typical riveting narrative. And um, what I you know, hope that we all at least walked away with is that like, the, the heritage, the ancestry, the origins of Jesus' family, it really is significant. It matters in terms of who Jesus is and what he's come to do. Uh, and so by looking at all the ups and downs, and there's a lot more downs maybe than ups in his family tree, um, we recognize that Jesus has come to save all kinds of people, uh, Jew and Gentile, uh, w- wicked and righteous. Like G- Jesus has come to redeem a people for himself. And, and so his birth uh, is really the inauguration, the beginning of that. So this week we're going to be in verses 18 through 25. This is maybe more of what you uh, bargained for when you started coming to this class. Um, we're going to be talking about the birth of Jesus. Um, What I want you to do, though, as I read this text, is to try, as best you can, to approach this with fresh eyes. Uh, This is a really familiar text. Now, maybe you're more familiar with Luke's version of things, where you get shepherds and angels and singing, and Mary's got a couple solos, and Elizabeth says some stuff. There's a, a whole, I mean, it's like four chapters, it feels like, I think, of of, of a lot of the birth of Jesus story. Matthew's is much more, much more efficient than that. We actually, as you read this, he doesn't mention anything about going to Bethlehem. He doesn't mention anything about Jesus being born in a, in a manger. None of those details are brought as much to the fore as they are in, in Luke's gospel. So this one's really, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting in how brief it is. But let me, let me read it for us. And, uh, and then I'll pray and we'll get into it. Matthew 1, starting in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, we, we ask that you would illuminate our minds by studying your word and considering the birth of your son. Help us to to understand what this means for us even today. Lord, we do thank you for the birth of Jesus. Uh, We thank you for the incarnation, that you've sent him into the world. I pray that as we meditate on this very familiar passage, um, that you would encourage us, that you would draw us into deeper love and joy uh, in, in Christ. And we ask that in his name. Amen. All right, so there are two things I want us to consider this morning. Two big ideas that I think are, are rolled out in this little passage, right? Uh, two things, an act of God and a man of God. I want us to look at an act of God and a man of God. 
Now, the genealogy of Jesus, was we established this last week, is included to demonstrate that despite all the brokenness and frailty and sin of his people, Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed, chosen King of Israel, and really, truly, the King of all of God's people, which includes more than just Israel, but anyone who puts their faith in, in Christ the Messiah. Despite all that brokenness, Jesus is the Christ. And then we're introduced to an unwed mother in the midst of this story. It, it just it, it kind of shows up out of nowhere where the first thing we see here is now Mary. And, and the claim that is made about her and the way she's presented is, is pretty astonishing. It's even, it's even kind of, well really scandalous, if not for the fact that, that it seems that the Lord is behind this. Right? It doesn't just seem like the Lord is behind this. The, the Lord declares pretty openly that he is behind everything that's taking place. If you remember the four mothers that are mentioned in Jesus' genealogy, uh, Tamar, uh, Rahab, Ruth, and uh, Bathsheba, uh, each of those four women have a certain air of scandal about their circumstances, maybe before we get to know them, or maybe in the midst of getting to know them, they, they do things that we would say are a bit unseemly for the mother of Jesus or any mother in this line of people. Uh, but in each of their cases, you know, they're, they're given divine favor and brought into God's people, which is really remarkable. Now, in Mary's case, the scandal that surrounds her is actually the result of God's divine favor given to her, which I think is interesting. It's a, it's a sort of reversal. But you could, you could look at Mary and Joseph, and you could say, and I won't go into any details, but I think we could say that, that this betrothed, engaged couple is going about things the right way, right? They're not doing anything unseemly or uh, unbiblical in the way that they treat one another and relate to one another. Even Joseph, as the story makes clear, is deeply confused about how it is that Mary could be pregnant. I'll just leave that there. So make no mistake, right? This is an act of God. It is the result, this pregnancy is the result of a divine intervention. Verse 18 says that she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Then verse 20, an angel is speaking to Joseph and confirms this. He says, that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. This is a work of the Holy Spirit in Mary's actual body taking place. But it's not only said to be from the Holy Spirit twice, but, but Matthew makes it plain that this is also the fulfillment of prophecy. And so turn with me to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. And uh, I want to read for you a little bit of where this prophecy comes from. Now, Matthew specifically mentions Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, which says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. That's, that's pretty close. I mean, that's a pretty good overlap with exactly what Matthew quotes in, in his gospel. Um, but, but the broader context of Isaiah chapter 7, I think, is instructive for us. Let's, so let's scale out a little bit. I'm going to pick up in verse 10 and read down through verse 17. 
So again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ahaz is a king of Judah. Ahaz, we've already mentioned in the Gospel of Matthew, because he is one of the guys listed in Jesus' genealogy. Ahaz, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. Now, just to give you a little more background here, because I realize we've kind of jumped in. So there's a situation going on in Judah where King Ahaz is pretty concerned about a pending invasion from these two neighboring nations, one of them being Assyria and the other one being Israel. Maybe thinking, that doesn't make sense. He's a king in Israel. No, this is at the time when the kingdoms are divided. And you've got Judah and you've got Israel. You've got the south and you've got the north. Israel is sometimes called Ephraim, uh, Judah, I think he's usually just called Judah. But nevertheless, right, Ahaz is he's facing a, di- a dilemma uh, where he sees this invasion imminent and has to, uh, has to act on it. And I misspoke earlier. I said Assyria. It's really Syria and Israel. Uh, Assyria does have a role here. So, so Ahaz is concerned, and he is trying to forge an alliance with the nation of Assyria, looking to them for help and salvation from these two, these two northern enemies. So again, the Lord speaks to him, ask a sign of the Lord your God, let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. So the Lord reaches out to Ahaz through the prophet Isaiah. He says, hey man, I see that you are dealing with some difficult stuff. I would like to give you an assurance. I'd like to give you a sign that I, the Lord your God, will be with you. The Lord is calling Ahaz to faith in the Lord. He's saying, I see the, the temptation here is for you to pursue worldly salvation through worldly pagan kings. That is not the solution. I am your God. You are my people. Let me show you and give you a good faith demonstration, a sign that I'll be with you and protect you and defend you and defeat your enemies. And Ahaz, you see, his, his response uh, stirs up some frustration from the Lord. Ahaz says, no, 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 I'm not going to put, I would not, I would never put God to the test. Now that sounds sort of humble until you realize that it's just a fancy way for Ahaz to look God in the eye and say, no, I don't want that. I'm not going to follow you. I'm not interested in what you have to say or what you might do. I figured out what I'm going to do, and that's the path that I'm going to take. That's, that's really the subtext of what's going on here with King Ahaz, mighty warrior of Judah. Uh, and and so, so then, in, that, in the midst of that, the Lord makes this promise. He, he gives to Ahaz this promise of a sign. He says, look, if you don't want a sign, fine. I'm going to give you one anyway. Here's what it will be. And then that's where especially verse 17 comes in. Matthew sees in Jesus' birth a direct line to Isaiah's prophetic word here. 
and what I, what I think is really telling about all this is a, is a bit of a change in, in sort of the, the pronouns that Ahaz and Isaiah use. If you just back it up for a second, looking back at Isaiah 7, the, there, there's an interesting way that Isaiah speaks in verse 10. He says, ask a sign of the Lord your God. And then Ahaz refuses to do this. And so then finally, Isaiah speaks again. He says, is it too little, verse 13, for you to weary men that you weary my God also? In a matter of three verses, Isaiah goes from describing the Lord, the God of Israel, as Ahaz's God. And Ahaz rejects the Lord. He refuses to, to, to hear what the Lord has to say. And so then Isaiah switches over and starts calling the God of Israel my God, Isaiah's God. In other words, Ahaz, you've, you've washed your hands clean here. You're done with the Lord. I can see that. So there, there's a real like break. There's a severing that takes place here between the Lord God of Israel and, and Ahaz, or really, as Isaiah himself calls him, the house of David. So, so I want you to see that. I want you to take note of that. And we've spent a lot of time last week, especially talking about this kingly line and how Jesus steps in to fulfill all the expectations of the king of Israel. Matthew's not done with that idea. And, and the book of Isaiah establishes a little more context for that. Here we have a king of Israel who turns from the Lord. And in response to this prophetic word that Isaiah gives in chapter 7, verse 14, Matthew sees that, that Jesus might actually be the solution to what Ahaz originally rejected, which is interesting when you're still talking about the house of David. So until the days of Jesus, really, I mean, from this point on, the, the kings of Judah and certainly of Israel, they function more or less as, as puppets of these other nations' kings. They, they, Israel is constantly in subjection to these other nations and other kings, and it's really, it really doesn't get any better from this time forward. So, what, what, what does this mean? What, what are we saying then about who Jesus is and what he's come to be? I, I think Jesus is truly the, the answer. He's the fulfillment of everything that, that Ahaz failed to see or really even failed to trust the Lord for. The Lord has made this promise. I, I'll give you a sign that I go before you and will save you from your enemies. And, and Ahaz rejects this, but, but here we see the Lord fulfilling that prophetic word. And here is the new king of Israel. We've established that Jesus is the Christ. He, he is that king. It's interesting. Now, how important is the virgin birth? That's been brought up a few times here. We think about Mary. We think about this prophecy from Isaiah. The virgin will conceive and bear a son, and you'll call his name Emmanuel. Uh, that, that's very specific. Uh, well, I think, I think this doctrine helps us in a, in a few ways. I can think of at least a couple here. It, it shows us that Jesus is fully God and fully man. He doesn't have two earthly biological parents. He has one biological earthly parent and one divine heavenly father. Right? And, and so it, it shows us that Jesus is truly, he is truly man, He's born of a woman, but he's also truly, fully God, because this is all of divine origin. 1 Timothy 2.5 says that there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And you see how, you see how Paul lays that out to Timothy. There's one God, there's one mediator between God and man, 
the man Christ Jesus. I mean, he's doubling down. There's one God, the man Christ Jesus. He's the mediator between God and man. That's how this works. And that's why this doctrine is really important to understand. Uh, Jesus has these, these two, uh, that he has uh, an earthly nature, a human nature, but also a divine nature. But also, the fact that Jesus has no earthly biological father means that he is unstained by the sinfulness of mankind. And so 2 Corinthians 5.21 follows this up. It says that, For our sake the Lord made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is sinless. He's born without a sin nature. Everybody else has been born with one of those. All of you, me, all of you guys, born with a sin nature because we are 100% completely and only human. Uh, but Jesus having these two natures and being born without uh, an earthly father means that he doesn't, he doesn't have that same sin nature that we have. Uh, that's really important because then it means that he is this perfect sacrifice for our sins and it really says a lot, too, about the very nature of that sacrifice, that he actually willingly took on our sin. He, he brought it upon himself in obedience to his Father's plan. But not only was Jesus born of a virgin, he, he is also, and this is really important, he, he is also called here in this passage, Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Matthew's point is that the one true king has come. And this is none other than, than the pillar of fire and cloud that led the Israelites through the wilderness. This is that God. This is, this is the glory of God manifested once again among God's people. This has always been a theme throughout the Old Testament, that God would be with his people, that he'd dwell among them. That's why they have to make a big special tent, so that everywhere they travel, they can set up a tent where the Lord's presence will dwell, because this is where they'll put the Ark of the Covenant, and hovering over the Ark of the Covenant will be the glory of God. It's as if the Ark is God's footstool. And this is where he sits and dwells and rests among his people. But of course, you know, ever since the temple was destroyed, there's been no, there's, there's really been nothing like this. It's been said that God has kind of abandoned Israel, that he's left. So when Jesus steps into the scene, and Matthew says, this is none other than Emmanuel, God with us, he's saying, no, all, all the hope that was bound up, even in the Garden of Eden, is now actually restored to God's people in the person of Jesus because he is God with us. He's God in the flesh, walking, dwelling among us. So what can thwart God's people if he himself is with them? This is, this is what Matthew's getting at. And I know I mentioned it last week, thinking about the Great Commission, where Jesus says, Behold, I'm with you always to the ends of the earth, or to the end of the age. Right? Jesus from beginning to end in the Gospel of Matthew especially, is always presented to us as God with us, present with us, among us, and, and, and therefore going before us and guiding us and protecting us and, and blessing us, giving us wisdom. And this is what Ahaz failed to understand. Ahaz rejected the wisdom of God. He rejected God's presence. He rejected God's provision and protection said, no, 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 I think I've got this figured out. I'm not going to put you to the test. That's what I'll say. But what he rejected, 
has actually now come to be the one and only hope of any king that Israel has ever had, which is in fact a new king who is Jesus, who is God with us, leading the charge for his people, protecting them from all of their enemies in a way that no Assyrian army or anybody else could possibly do. This, this act of God, this divine intervention, it reveals the presence of God to save his people from all their enemies. I want to read for you from our, uh, our statement of faith, which talks a bit about the incarnation of Jesus and his, just the nature of, of who he is. It says this, We believe that the salvation of sinners is holy of grace, through the mediatorial offices of the Son of God. So Jesus is like a go-between. He stands between mankind and, and God. Who, by the appointment of the Father, freely took upon him our nature, yet without sin. Honored the divine law by his personal obedience, and by his death made a full atonement for our sins. That having risen from the dead, he is now enthroned in heaven and uniting in his wonderful person the tenderest sympathies with divine perfections. He is every way qualified to be a suitable, a compassionate, and an all-sufficient Savior. So the, the incarnation of Christ, who is born of a woman by the power of the Holy Spirit, is essential for our salvation. And this is critical. Don't overlook it. I think it can maybe be easy to be so familiar with this that we just kind of sweep it aside as just a part of the story. You know, even if people disagree or, or would argue about the, the nature of Jesus' birth and the incarnation, they still, they're familiar enough with this story that it doesn't really even ruffle their feathers, right? That, oh, yeah, yeah, I know, he was born of the Virgin Mary. What? Yeah, I don't know. I think there are plenty of Christians who maybe don't see this as, as particularly vital, for our understanding of who the Lord is and, and of the gospel and of salvation. But do you, do you see how important this is to grasp? I mean, on the one hand, it's just the fulfillment of the Lord's prophetic word. Right? So, so this is, that's, that's important not to reject out of hand. But at the same time, it tells us something about the nature of Jesus, that he is God and man, that he is sinless, spotless, and holy in a way that none of us are capable of being. And that this same person laid down his life to, to save us from our sins. Christ, Jesus, is God with us. His divinity is our only hope and salvation. He is our life because he's God. He, he, he is it. He, he's the one. But his humanity also makes him one of us, but unstained. So you have the transcendent God of the universe who actually becomes eminent right here with us, right here dwelling among us. He, he becomes knowable in the truest sense of the word. And I think about like the, God, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God, John says. The only God who is at the Father's side, that is Jesus, he has made him known. If you want to know what God is like, witness Jesus. You know, you want to know how God thinks about things, or, or if we can say this, how God feels about things. You, you need to look to Jesus. 
when, when you see Jesus weeping over Lazarus, it's not just Jesus being you know, really sentimental and compassionate. He's a reflection of the nature of our God. This, this, is, this is how our God acts and thinks. This is what our God values and does. Um, the humanity, the divinity of Jesus, these two things, they go hand in hand. You cannot, you cannot rightly worship Jesus or know him without understanding one, like both of these things. You, you emphasize one and you veer off into heresy. That's just always been the case for centuries. You overemphasize his humanity and you lose sight of his divinity and suddenly he becomes just a perfect example for how we should live. You, you overemphasize his divinity at the expense of his humanity and suddenly he is beyond our grasp, beyond our reach. And, and, and really becomes something other than the, the Jesus of the Bible, who, who delights to know his people and walk among them, and who has actually offered himself to save them from their sins, because he himself is the perfect sacrifice. He is human. It is his life that's substituted for ours. So in Christ, you know, I mentioned this a moment ago, in Christ, we really do have a return to, to really the, the Garden of Eden. You know, I mentioned last week that the, the first verse, the first chapter and first verse of this book, it, it functions as a sort of title. The, the book of the genealogy or genesis of Jesus Christ. Matthew, Matthew is always thinking about this idea that this is a return in some way, a recreation, a renewal of God's creation. And once again, here we have God walking among his people. You think of Genesis 3.8, where, where Adam and Eve, they hide from the Lord. They hear him walking through the garden, and they, they run off to hide because they're very concerned about how this is going to go down now that they are sinners. And, uh, and, and so, but, you, but the Lord walks among them. And here, once again, we have God with us brought into this creation, stepping into creation as really the only hope that creation might be redeemed and transformed and restored. This, this is really important. God is walking among his people once again. But I don't only want to think about this act of God. This is incredible. This is not something to be sneered at. But here in, in the context of this paragraph and a half, Matthew gives us something else to think about as well. It's not just this act of God, but there is a man of God that, that is present here that is really exemplary for us as well and I think communicates to us what we need to do with this information. It's one thing to just establish in your heart, okay, yeah, I know the story. Jesus born of a virgin, you know, shepherds and angels and, you know, all of the stuff that Luke talks about. I, yeah, no, I'm familiar with it. Okay, well, Joseph shows us then really what to do with this information. So, the, so these are the facts of Jesus' birth. We've established that. And we accept that this is the story today, even if you don't maybe accept or defend the details. But put yourself in Joseph's shoes. Let's think about him. Now, in Luke's gospel, Mary gets a pretty good focus. So she's, there's a lot of emphasis on what she thinks, what she says. She's visited by Gabriel, explained all these things. She says, how can these things be? She sings a song. She goes and visits her cousin Elizabeth, and Elizabeth's pregnant, and this is a whole thing. I mean, there's a lot of emphasis on Mary. She's a godly woman. She's probably, truly, like the, the first Christian, as we think of Christians, Right? She's the first one given this good news, and she's the first one who actually has to do something with this. She's the first one given the name, right, of Jesus. Now, I, 
all these Old Testament people, they're, if, they, if they are trusting in the Lord's provision and promise, even if they don't know the name Jesus, they're, they're still saved by Jesus' blood, right? But Mary and Joseph, they get the name. They're, they're, they're the first to hear that name and to have to wrestle with what to do with this. And can you imagine how much wrestling they had to do with this, especially Mary? But Matthew doesn't really talk about Mary. It's not that he doesn't respect her. I think maybe on some level he knows Luke's got it. I'm going to talk about Joseph instead. And so that's where he leans in. Matthew's gospel is focused on Joseph, who is God's choice for Jesus' earthly father. Just think about that. I mean, truly, in this instance, Joseph could have left. He could have disappeared. It could have been anybody. Joseph has no integral part in the birth of Jesus. Right? It could have been any guy. Uh, but, but the Lord saw fit to make Joseph the earthly father of his son. That's just something to, to really ponder. Joseph is betrothed to a woman who is mysteriously pregnant, which we haven't talked about this, but that's punishable by stoning. It's certainly grounds for divorce, which in this case, even though they're not literally married, they're, they're, the way betrothal and engagement and all that stuff worked in this ancient time is that they were effectively married. They were bound to each other legally. And for them to break off the engagement wasn't just revoking a ring. It would have required divorce proceedings. This was a, this was a big deal. So they're not, they're not officially married, but, but this is more than just sort of being engaged for a few months. This is a real commitment that they've made to each other that, that Joseph has every right to dissolve because of the optics of what's going on here. But, but you notice verse 19, Joseph is also a just man who is unwilling to put Mary to shame. And don't, don't miss this. This is, this is true of Joseph before the angel comes to visit him and explain what's going on. Before Joseph is even told that this is a work of the Holy Spirit, which even then, I don't understand, Lord, uh, even then would have been really difficult for Joseph to comprehend. Joseph knows Mary's character. He, he understands on some level. Maybe Mary's talked to him about the visit that Gabriel had with her, where he explained these things to her as well. I don't know. We don't get those details. The point is, Joseph's a good guy. He's, he's a godly man. He, he is a... Well, he, he's a man of God. He's a remarkable man with, with some really unnatural humility when you think about it. And a very steady dependence on the Lord. Uh, the angel that comes to visit him in verse 20 refers to him as son of David. Son of David. Uh, which again, you think about the genealogy of Jesus. You think about all the things that we've been talking about. How Jesus is really the true and better David to come. How he is the king of all the kings of Israel. And, and then you establish Joseph here. It, Joseph is this, he's, oh, Joseph, son of David. Let me, it's, it's just this reminder of where Joseph stands in this line. Uh, but also then of, of the significance of this son that will be, that will be his. He's told not to fear but to trust that the Lord is at work. And then he's given this incredible privilege of naming Jesus. He says, you're going you're gonna to have a son, you're going to name him Jesus. Uh, the Greek name for Jesus is Jesus, uh, which is kind of like that. So we've talked about Christ being like a title, and then Jesus or Jesus being, uh, being the actual sort of everyday 
you know, sign your checks with this name, name, right? Um, that, that's his name, but it, it actually has some historical significance because it's got an equivalent in Hebrew, which is Yeshua or Yehoshua or Joshua is a common way we see it in the Old Testament. And it means Yahweh saves. It means the, the God of Israel, that one only true God, saves. And, and Matthew doesn't want us to miss this at all, right? He, he says, you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Make no mistake, uh, this is the Savior of God's people. And so Joseph's given the privilege of, of naming Jesus this when that baby is born. And I want you to recognize that this is, just, this is more than just Joseph being given a, a random name to kind of label this baby with. Because of the meaning of the name, because of the historical significance of this name, for Joseph to actually follow through on this is in some ways, a, it's an expression of faith. I mean, it, it's an act of obedience to the Lord. Yeah, you, you know, he's not about to be like, you know what, I think Bart is maybe a better name for him. Like, he's not going to do that. I don't know why I picked that name. Um, instead, he, he, he hears this name. This name means Yahweh saves, and his, his reaction is to say, okay, then that's his name. That's what he'll be called. That's what I will put down on his birth certificate. He's not just obeying the Lord. He's, he's actually believing the Lord. He's trusting the Lord. By giving Jesus this name and following through on this, he's acknowledging the Lord's purposes through this boy. And maybe he doesn't fully understand what it will all mean. And look, we don't hear a lot from Joseph as the gospel stories go on. He kind of disappears from the narrative. But, but Joseph, he, he has to make a concrete decision to believe what the Lord says about who Jesus is. And that that's how, that's how salvation works. You have to do something with this knowledge of who Jesus is and what he's come to do. When Ahaz, that king in Israel, when he heard the name Emmanuel, it was really offered to him as a sort of rebuke from the Lord. Right, fine, you don't trust me? All right, you know, I, the virgin will conceive and bear a child, and you're going to call him God with us. That's, that is how much with you and for my people I am and will be. Right? But when Joseph hears this name, when another son of David hears this word, Emmanuel, he, he believes this good news. He, he, he clings to it. He takes hold of it in a way that none of these other kings ever did, which I think is, is just a perfect, perfect picture of, of the kind of guy Joseph is and, and the kind of person that the Lord chose to be the earthly father for his son. It's, it's such an example of faith. And remember, this is at no, there's no small cost to this for Joseph. His reputation, his integrity, his very livelihood, all of it is, is at stake here. But he trusts the Lord. The Lord hasn't spoken to his people for centuries. Israel's kings, it seems, have been totally abandoned, carried off to Babylon or wherever else, and no, nothing has been the same ever since. The promises of God have seemed to fail. But when God reveals his plans to Joseph, a humble carpenter, Joseph doesn't hesitate to act on God's word. I just love that. I mean, you know, Joseph's a humble guy, but at the end of it all, he, he, that humility leads him to just take God at his word. 
Why in the world should Joseph think that God has chosen to speak to him of all people? Uh, yeah, there's an angel, there's a dream, there's a lot of very visceral things that would maybe suggest that, yeah, okay, this is, I, this is not just my imagination. But still, you look at the past, you look at the history, Joseph is not the first guy you would expect to be called up from uh, centuries of silence and the Lord say, all right, here's my plan. And yet, Joseph trusts the Lord, he believes the Lord, and he, he follows the Lord and does exactly what the Lord says. I think, I think what Matthew is showing us here is that this is the kind of faith that is the beginning of wisdom unto salvation. This, this is what that looks like. It's the beginning and end of the Christian life. It's rooted in the gospel, but it extends to all facets of life. Hearing the word of God, believing him, taking him at his word, and, and doing what he says. So let me just close with this. Then. What, what does it look like for you to believe God? And what does that mean? Maybe you've been a believer for a long time. Maybe you're a kid and you're just thinking, I don't really know if I've ever actually thought about this. Like, you, you need to wrestle with this. You need to examine this. What, what, what does Joseph show us here? What is, what is his example for us of believing and trusting the Lord? I think for starters, it, it means this, knowing that God with us, Emmanuel, will save his people from their sins. I mean, at the very minimum, that is what Joseph does here. He doesn't flinch. He doesn't hesitate. He doesn't second guess. He, yeah, I don't know. No, I don't know. His name's Emmanuel, God with us. All right. You want me to call him Jesus? Yahweh saves? Okay. That. All right, that's who he is. You, you don't just do that without, without acknowledging some really, really difficult things to just sort of agree to. Now, this is big. But not only does he, does he trust and, and know that God with us will save his people from their sins and that God's presence among his people is their only hope of salvation, but, but he submits his life. And, and I think for us, it means we need to submit our lives to, to God's purposes for us in Christ. So that's what it looks like to believe God in, in this way. Knowing who God is, submitting our lives to his purposes for us in Christ. And third, acting on God's promises that we find in his word. All right, acting on them. Don't, don't miss this. Joseph woke from sleep. He's just had this dream. He woke from sleep. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife he knew her not till she had given birth to a son, and he called that son's name Jesus. The only reason he didn't do all these things in the very next second is that pregnancy takes more than a second. And, and, and so for the remainder of her pregnancy, you know, five, six months, it's hard to say, Joseph is walking with the Lord, trusting his word, and he, 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 he follows through on what the Lord has told him. And he names him Jesus. Really, not just to obey the Lord, but to declare his own faith in who Jesus is. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, we do thank you for, for this word, and we thank you for the example of Joseph. We thank you for this man of God who demonstrates for us in some incredible humility, not just personally, but historically, as this guy who is so quiet in Scripture from here on out. We, we thank you for this example that he gives, that you give to us through him of simply trusting you, taking you at your word, believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God who has come to save us from our sins, that we might know you. 
Lord, help us to submit to your word. Help us to, to act on what you have spoken and the promises that you make in Scripture. I pray that we would not lean on our own understanding or our own strength, but that we would trust in Christ. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.